This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thank you, everyone, for taking the time to join us on today. And as always, a special welcome to those of you who are joining us for the very first time. Yep, we're here again with another Talking Shop episode. I got another great guest. Some of you are probably already familiar with this gentleman. Uh, We are cohort, we're peers, fellow faculty members at Kent State University. He's an author of an up-and-coming book, which I'm going to let him talk about. When I say up-and-coming, it's already published, but it's still going up the ranks and people are learning about it. I put his book on my UX research recommendations list. Uh, The guy has phenomenal things to say. Uh, This is all I'm going to say. It is Mark Majors. Welcome, Mark, joining us here on the World of UX. (laughs) Hi, Darren. Thanks for the intro. Absolutely. I am so happy to have you here today. But Mark, I always have people introduce themselves. Go ahead and take it away here, Mark. Please tell everybody who you are, what you're doing. It is your time, sir. Please take the microphone. Excellent. My name is Mark Majors. I have written a couple UX books. I also host a UX podcast. Yes. I have been in the space for a little while. What's interesting is this whole journey being in UX, you know, just like we talked about on my podcast, we've been in UX before it was called UX. Yes. <laughs> and right now, this is the place to be. Everyone is interested in user experience. And the fascinating thing I always think about as we start exploring and talking today about this space is that my whole goal over the last few years is to level the playing field and get people on the same, using the same vocabulary, thinking, yes. You know, yes. talking the same, because if we're all coming from all these different angles, how will the industry ever move forward? You know, we're, we're talking, exactly. we're, <laughs> we're coming up with new terminology that has existed. And I think we need to all work together to make the space better. And I feel sometimes that we're all moving in different directions. And I think it's important as professionals in this space to continue to discuss. And that's why I love the fact that your podcast is here and we can cover topics that are really salient to people. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, absolutely love that. And a little bit about Mark's background too. I want to touch on this because there's a lot more people that were doing UX before it was called UX than people like to recognize. Mark, I'm looking at his profile right now. Mark was a multimedia director for Peerless LLC in 1996. He was a creative director for ClevelandHits.com back in 2001, right after the dot-com bust. So he was around when all of that stuff was going on. He was a web experience developer for Progressive Insurance. Yes, he worked for Flow if you will, back in 2002. Then he was a senior web designer. I mean, a lot of us, we had all these positions and we just, we just, I'm sure like that you did the same thing. Everybody I talked to, everybody I know who did what we now know as UX prior to the turn of the century, we all fell into it. You didn't try to do this. You didn't have it as an option back then. It was just something that came up the next thing you know, you were doing it and you fell in love with it. And, and oh, yeah, I'm totally, yeah. And, and I love that organic path. And I've come across a lot of people today that are getting into or, to UX organically. And I love that because they didn't get into UX because they saw a, a uh, top uh, field to go into in the next 10 years. They didn't get into it because they saw a, a UX salary report and decided I want, I want my piece of that pie. To love the discipline means so much. 
I mean, I got to tell you, Darren, I mean, I, I remember the first time that I said, wait a minute, what is this? And this was in the late nineties uh-huh. when I was working at peerless and I was one day, just someone knocked on my door and said, Hey, could you jump into this meeting right now? And I was uh-huh. like, okay. So I walked into this office room and they had this discussion going and this was right when I'm going to date myself, but flash was big. You know, obviously there's a whole crusade against no more flash, Right. but they wanted to build a color visualizer. So you go in, change the colors of your walls, print it off, take the home Depot. And I was like, great. So went to start building it. I worked with an ad agency Uh and about three weeks before its release, one of the sales managers said, Hey, I think we should get user feedback on this. I was like, <laughs> user feedback. <laughs> so ended up taking it to a usability lab in Chicago, went out there and watched user after user go through having trouble doing things, not being able to complete anything. And as my laundry list of changes kept growing, I said, why did I do this before? Yeah. I don't think I can ever build anything ever again in my life without getting mm-hmm. customer feedback and then also in a controlled way. So then I actually understand what's happening so I could take that feedback and merge it into, to basically the development process. Yep. And that was the spark. I said, just, I always think everyone has an aha moment mm-hmm. is whether it's a usability test, uh, analytics, watching someone fail, whatever it is, that's what I generally think organically brings people into this space Mm -hmm. and they realize that it can change the outcome of a project and actually be a competitive factor. And I I really think that's what's changing the world right now. People are realizing, wait a minute. And I'm seeing all these little, you know, I don't know what you call them, you know, TikTok videos or these little (laughs) memes that all seem to reflect that thought. Yeah. It, it, it is a wonderful, I mean, it's a lovely thing when you see the impact that we can have, the joy. I, I, I'm big on intrinsics. I mean, we've already left the script and I don't care. We have a conversation. That's fine too. I love the intrinsic factors associated with UX. And for those of you that don't know what I mean, okay, extrinsics are your PTO, your pay, things you can see, touch, and use. But the intrinsics are the joy that we get from doing the work, the the joy that we get from from driving success to to make sure that that we've optimized usability, that we help to drive uh, design for a product that actually brings people delight. You hear people talking about delight in UX. Does your design really bring delight? And and how do you know? And so just, you made me think about the intrinsics, that that aha moment, that light bulb moment that all of us have had when you when you see, wow, I did do a good job or, oh man, lesson learned, let's go fix that. The, the joy, when you leave at the end of the day, I always love the joy that you get because of what you achieved. Whether the design succeeded or failed, you still succeeded. In one way or another, because you either got a lesson learned that you can go and fix something. I'm glad we found out and we can fix it now. Or you know what? We did pretty good. We only had to make minimal changes. I just absolutely love the intrinsics, the the joy, the satisfaction. That's an intrinsic benefit. The peace, the the feeling of of accomplishment mm-hmm. that we get. Solving problems. I mean, a lot of us did puzzles when we were kids, right? Did you do a lot of puzzles when you were a kid, Mark? My mom had puzzles out <laughs> everywhere, and they would go from the 250 piece to whatever. The I think it could went up to 10,000 pieces or something. <laughs> but it would always happen that one little piece would still be missing at the end. Yeah, like somehow you waited too long. You left the the puzzle on the table too long, and you lost the piece. Yeah, yeah. But that but that was the fun part was putting it together when you finally find that piece and you had the joy of putting that puzzle together. Yes. Well, you started making me think about something too, that I think it's tied to that intrinsic value uh-huh. is I always think when I'm doing UX that I'm also the advocate for the consumer yes. because 
they can't Bingo. speak in the process. Yes. They're, they're there. But when you're talking to business, which is pretty much most of your job, you're representing the end users. So yes. you have the technical, you have the business, but who's representing the end user? Well, I know my end user. The question I always ask people, and this is what I started diving into my book is, well, how deep do you know your end user? Yes. Do you know how they put their shoes on? Are, are they, <laughs> they double tying the shoelaces? Is it Velcro? Do they double tie the shoelaces and just slip their feet in because they don't want to tie their shoes? <laughs> do you know it down to that level of detail? And right, I've, right. I've even known friends where one shoe is bigger than the other. Do you know that? So I think it is interesting how we say we know we're customers yep. or we know our customers, but how deep do you? And that's where I think it comes down to being an advocate, because if that's your job, that also is going to bring some joy. Exactly. Exactly. You, you just mentioned a huge part. When I look at a lot of the people that, I mean, I talk to people all over the world. I know you talk to a lot of people as well. And, and you see people, why did you get into UX? How are you doing the work? Things of that nature. And a lot of people today, not only do people opt into UX, I'm just flat out say it, for the wrong reason. They opt into UX for a reason that's not sustainable. And not only is it not sustainable, it doesn't transition into impacting the work the right way. Because if you don't, I mean, we are advocates. When I am in a meeting, when I am driving for the optimal user experience, I basically become the representation, the advocate for the users. They have nobody to speak on their behalf. Nobody. Then the beautiful part is I also... I'm, I'm chameleon-like because I got to shift from being the user to understanding the business needs. I, I come across a lot of people who think that UX folks, that all we care about is the users. No. And there's that famous Venn diagram of yeah. user needs, business needs, and constraints. And all it's all about the sweet spot. And if we're business heavy, we're out of sync. If we're user heavy, we're out of sync. If we don't Pay attention to the constraints. You're not going to win there anyway because the constraints let you know what you can and can't do realistically. And Darren, you have hit another prime <laughs> spot of discussion because that's the other thing that I bring up a lot. And I've had a couple lectures about this is that we have to move away from MVP, minimum mm. viable product. Who wants the minimum? Oh, I'll take the minimum. No one wants the minimum of anything. It should move to market ready product, something that a customer like that. feels nice. they're the ready. They, it's got everything they need. It's included, but that takes a careful balance. And currently most organizations are using agile, but they're using the WSJF process, which they cram business and user needs into the same column. It's, yeah. Business and user needs are not the same thing, but agile thinks so. So making sure that you're actually dividing those into separate columns, you you have the business, you have the user needs, you know, the technical constraints, you're thinking about all those things and you're weighing those separately. It's important to think about them, but it seems time and time again, everyone falls back to the ceremonies that are in agile. And yeah. I know that's just a whole other topic <laughs> that we could probably spend four hours on. Yeah. But for all those that are listening, that's the other part of it is that when we talk about all these intrinsic values and advocate for the consumer, it still has to fit into the business and the development process. Yep. And that's another learning point for most new UXers yes. and figuring out how and when is the best place to incorporate. And of course we have answers for that, but just oh, yes. probably a good topic to discuss. <laughs> awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. I'm going to jump back over to all these things said. I want to jump back over mm -hmm. to our standard, my standard Let's set of, of John Lipton style questions. I, th I think ready. I got, I know I got his last name right. Uh, Mr. Lipton, he uh, dearly departed yes. Mr. Lipton from inside the actor studio. He became the model. What he did on that show became the model for this. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to jump around a bit. So I know I'm ready. I got to ask this one because we're asking everybody this. Mm hmm. How did you, you talked about where you worked mm -hmm. and you basically talked about the light bulb moment about getting into UX, but how did you, from that point in time, 
How did you build your, once you made the discovery, this is what I want to do. This is definitely what I want to do. I like this. I enjoy this, which is just wonderful because they, they say if you do what you love, you don't work a day in your life. And, and that's why to, to, to find something of all the things we could have done, UX was it. I know it was for me. I hear that I hear in your voice and in your in your passion that it was for you. But how did you develop your expertise? How did you help Mark to become better, to become more confident, to become more knowledgeable, to be able to put yourself in a position where you could come into a meeting and be definitive to actually lead? People don't realize that UX is a leadership role. No matter, you can be entry level, I don't care what you are. It's a leadership role. You're leading people when you're going pe- uh, through this process. So what, what was it that, how did you continue to build your acumen over time? I think it's pretty simple. I, thinking about the question, it came down to, my job always was to launch something, get something into production, mm-hmm. needed to, whatever the word is, elevate, launch. So there was a checklist of what you need to do. You need to first sketch out the idea. Then you need to get sign off. Then you need to code it. Then you need to QA check it. Then you need to, oh, usability test it. So I think as you were building something, there was a natural checklist. And as I started going through that checklist, I started wondering, well, where are the checkpoints to understand the user's needs? And then how does that factor back to what the business goals are and the technical constraints? So really it just started becoming a checklist. And that's essentially what my first book was, which was a checklist of how to build a website with usability in mind, because that's what Mm -hmm. it was called back then was usability. It wasn't called UX. It was uh, (laughs) even in Cleveland, we had something called Neopa, which was the Northeastern Ohio Usability Professionals Association. So somewhere back, I don't know how many years ago they, they changed usability into user experience. Yeah, they did. Yeah. So there was a, there was a change there, but I think it, it came down to the process and the creative process and making sure that every step was represented. And then from there, it just like everything else, it's a habit. If, if you don't do it regularly, then it will fall out and you most likely will see it as a challenge, not as something that's good for you. Right, right, right. Yeah, and it is just amazing stuff. And another thing I talk to people about all the time, I'm sure you do too, that you don't just come in here and start to do the work. You've got to develop. And not only do you develop, but when you get into UX, it is a commitment to lifelong learning. We always learn. We never, ever, ever stop. So those things said, a little bit more memory lane stuff. What was your fondest memory? as a UX professional, what, what comes to mind first and foremost? I think the most interesting thing was in, in the early days when there was a lot of banter about when should you do this or why is it valuable? And I always saw it as where it is today, which is now it's this huge industry. Back then it was, Oh, maybe we should. And, we, I know one of our favorite authors is Jesse James Garrett and he's yeah. been around for a long time. And I remember when I saw his work, it really solidified that this is definitely the space that I want yep. to be. Yep. And some of those just beginning groups, the, what you would call now the meetup groups and just having people come in and share there. And I remember specifically, I had a debate. I remember this was at Cuyahoga <laughs> community college and I had a debate on whether or not splash screens were necessary or not. Oh, wow. And if you oh remember, <laughs> there was, you should have a splash screen and not a splash screen. Well, I guess the side, I think it was like they spun some wheel and they said, you're going to get the side to defend it. I was like, okay, I'm going to defend why you should have a splash screen. And what I thought about was I narrowed it down to the audience that with anything, it depends on who your audience is. Now, I don't think every website should have one, but I, I, I remember the example I used was if you love college football, which I'm really, I'm more of an NFL kind of a person, but if you're a big college football fan, then you may really enjoy seeing all the head football coaches on this splash screen and, you know, rawing and everything. And yes, you should <laughs> still follow the basic UX where you can skip it and then remember never to show me this again. But 
it was so early on in the process that we, we were, I, I just loved the debate of what are the best practices and should we have it or should we have it? And I think the same thing continues today, whether it's flash, whether it's, you know, how many carousels should I have on a, on a homepage, Darren? Is it six? Is it seven? You know, what's, what's the best way that I should put together my content? You know, is, is it really sixth grade reading level or can I write for somebody that's in college? People can't be at sixth grade reading level. Can they, Darren? You know, so it is interesting how the same thing is today. It's just, it doesn't matter exactly what it is. There's still our best practices and it just makes me think about that you could pretty much debate anything today and probably come out on the other side with the best practices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man, splash screens. Uh, you, you bring back an old memory of splash <laughs> screens uh, back in that day, man. Remember, yeah, the remember, sound effects and, you know, uh, they take forever to load. Yes. I remember like some of the colleges <laughs> had them on their home screen. I'm like, do I really need, you know, uh, you know, one minute intro or <laughs> people walking across a screen with words coming at me, oh. you know, skip, but there was no skip button. No, no. They, they came along a little later, of course, but it was such a waste. The, the one website that came to my mind was where I come to the website and it takes five to 10 minutes for this splash screen to load. So I wait, I go get something to eat, come back. Still waiting. It finally loads. It was the worst splash screen ever. Uh, it finally loads a dove. I mean, once it once it was done and the whole screen went black, I'm like, okay, what am I waiting on? Man, this must really be great. And it really set that stage. And the screen went black. And a dove flew across the screen. And that was it. That was it. That was it. And, and that's one of the reasons that we have the dot-com bust because everybody yep. ran to the internet, but there was no conscience or awareness or care exercise for users. Most sites were brochureware. E-commerce was in its infantile stages and was barely seen. It was mostly about shop online and then go to the store and buy it. You weren't going to do it online, oh, yeah. not too much. No. And, and so... Oh my God, those splash screens were just awful. They were, they were. and it's, it's like a fashion trend. I mean, you can pick something today and you can probably find something that you think is awful. I always hear about carousels seems uh-huh. to be the thing that comes up. That's why I threw it in there. But the same thing today, there's always a design trend. There's been a lot of discussion around material design. It's starting to age and it's not, it was never developed to handle the amount of information it's being used to today. It was developed for, for Gmail and the designer of, <laughs> of material said it, and now it's global enterprises are, are using it. So yeah. there's always limitations to these things. The, the question though is once again, I just always think it goes back to the audience. Is it appropriate for the audience? Right. And have you really thought about once again, those two other pillars, the business and the technical when you're putting it together? Yeah, you just made me think about something else, too. I'm going to jump off script uh, because the famous statement, I heard somebody say it at an event recently, and it was just a wonderful statement. Uh, But I'll mention the statement first because it's probably going to, you're going to start laughing and a story is going to come to mind, I'm sure. Google does it like this. Apple does it like that. How many times have we heard that over the course of our career? And, And the statement that was made, which I thought was brilliant. And I had never heard anybody say it before where a lot of people copy off of someone else's designs and they have absolutely no idea what the design problem that was being solved when exactly. that thing that you're copying came up. So you can't copy somebody's design because you don't know what the problem was that was being solved. So if you copy what somebody did, if the design problems don't match, what did you just accomplish? And and this is what UX is. We, right. it, it's that that mental part. It, it's the it's the journey, the cognitive journey of putting pieces together back to the puzzle. Again, putting things together so we realize that we do the right thing. Because anybody can design anything. If if you you code something, the browser is going to say, this is "True, I know how to interpret this code." put it in the window. And a lot of people who don't understand design is a science. 
And that's another project I have coming up. That's the one I was, before we started recording, I was going to mention. Now it comes back to mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you are a user experience professional, uh, and, and I have to say that with an asterisk, you are actually a scientist, technically. You are a scientist. You are an information scientist. But you Correct. are a scientist. And, and, and folk, if you're going to be in UX, you need to make sure to operate as a scientist. This is not about Figma. <laughs> I, I mean, you're making me go on a tangent myself. Because go, go. When I, when I was, uh, when I worked over at my last gig, we set up a whole booth where for years we wore lab coats and uh-huh. wow. that was our gig was come on up and we're doing science over here. And that was the thing that got people at a conference to come over and say, well, what are they doing over there? Why are they dressed in lab coats? You know, and we, we would, you know, walk around with clipboards and ask people questions. But once again, it is about the science because you are trying to push things forward and push the envelope forward. Yep. And the only way to do that is to consider things as experiments. And because an experiment means it's early in the process, I'm mm-hmm. not bound to it. And I think that's the other challenge with the current UX landscape is we code things, we build things, we get locked into that design and then we'll say, we'll fix it later, which is very costly Yes, because you're following the 110, 100 rule, which is it's going to be more costly later to fix it than early. And yep. that's the whole inclusive design wagon. That's amazing stuff. I, yeah, I wish people would recognize that more. It would it would result in practitioners having more respect for the discipline, which is sorely lacking today. And when we have respect for the discipline, our stakeholders and our clients can't help but respect what we do. When, when people try to microwave everything, who who who? Which meal do people have more respect for? The lean cuisine that got microwaved, or the gourmet meal by Bobby Flay? And some of you don't know who Bobby Flay is. Just take my word Bro for down. it. He's a huge, <laughs> huge cook. A uh, big, big name. Uh, Julia Child. If you don't, you know, so you'll you're, you'll know somebody uh, that I'm. Or what's the other name? Gordon. Whatever his name is, the guy who yells and screams at people mm-hmm. uh, on on the, on the One Chef show. But the thing is, we're people are trying to bring forth a generation of short order cooks. And, and short order cooks and, and sous, a sous chef or a gourmet chef, we're talking completely different levels here. And, and in order to drive the discipline, we need more gourmet chefs. You might start out as a short order cook. I, I get it. You might start out flipping burgers at McDonald's. But, but if you have your sights set the right way and continue to learn, you're going to expand. A lot of, a lot of gourmet cooks today got their start at a greasy spoon restaurant somewhere. Yeah. So, and it's the same thing. So did we, so did we. We, <laughs> we, we definitely did. And you, we talked about this before we started, but when you start talking about the chefs, I also think about, we talked about Olympians earlier as yes, well. Yes, yes. And I also think that we're athletes. We're, we're yes. training. And the difference between a gold medal and being in 12th place is generally fractions of a second. Yep. So, when you're trained in this profession and you are, if you are the executive chef or the sous chef, you want to do that comparison or you want to do do the comparison to the Olympian, the, to become a gold medalist or come in silver, it's fractions of a second. So when you're building your product and you want to have that competitive quality, if you want to separate yourself from the others, it's, it is fractions. It's, it's really tiny bits of increments of improvements and whether it's research, design, testing, whatever facet of UX you fall into, it's important to, as you were saying earlier, that's why you're continually learning because you are becoming sharper and sharper so that you can beat that record. You can go for the gold and you don't end up in 15th place Yes. <laughs> so that you, you, you can. And now that we just went through all this Olympic cycle, it came to my mind again. I mean, that's, that's what I feel like sometimes that we are. Yes. And you, when you said that, you made me think about the recent presentation that Don, that uh, not Don Norman, Jacob Nielsen gave 
and he talked about what he expects for UX by the year 2050. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that, that came to mind from that presentation was that he talked about how that the impact that we have on designs will begin to shrink over time. So that metaphor that you just brought up about the Olympic athlete, it's the same exact thing. He said that UX professionals are going to make up 1% of the population by 2050, that there will be that many UX professionals, but the impact that we have in comparison to the margins will get smaller and smaller and smaller. But that's because over time, you don't see people breaking certain records. They don't, they don't break rec- the same record every single solitary year. Or if they do, it's only by fractions of a second. And that's what he was getting at. The measure of impact is going to decrease. But that's because there's so much that's been done and there's so much that people do. But we have to labor, even though the, the increments of impact will get smaller, we're still talking about producing at the same level. Right. And that's still and word it, class. <laughs> it, there could be new technology, the the Apple glasses, or you know, even I know there's the Oculus is out there, and some other new technology. You could apply those UX, and we may move into another era. But the reality still is, is there's only so many products, and there's only so many things that we're going to buy. So <laughs> yep. it's it's definitely in line with what's going to happen. Wonderful stuff. Yes, yes. Awesome, man. I'm glad you brought that metaphor back up because that's dynamite stuff. What is the best decision you felt you ever made as a UXer? Simple. Going back to grad school. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, So I graduated from my undergrad. I was supposed to be a lawyer. Me too. And I really, (laughs) I, I convinced my mom. I said, Mom, before I go to law school, I just want to take a year off. And I always wanted to be a radio DJ. Uh So I was able to get a gig at this small little like AM station. And I remember I was working the overnight and there was an ad in the paper that said web designer, no experience necessary. And I never looked back. I, I, I was an intern and then it ended up, I ended up over at peerless and became the creative director. But for years, people would look at my resume or talk to me and say, so what's, what's your major in? I mean, like environmental law. Wait a minute. <laughs> and, and you do web design? <laughs> so it was really confusing. And I had started talking to Kent State about their program, but at the time it wasn't online. Yep. You had to drive to Kent. I, I couldn't do that. I was a working individual. So I kept contacting the program. I check in every year. This was going on four to five years. Oh, wow. Finally one year, I... I I emailed them and they said, we're putting it online next year. Count me in. So I ended up, I think I went in maybe the second, I don't know how, how many, how long they had the full carousel up for that, but I ended up jumping into that program and people were like, wait a minute, why did you go back? And to me, it was the continual learning, Uh even though I had been in the space for already 10 plus years, going back, hearing some new techniques. I remember I was in there and I think it was Dan Berlin was teaching and he said, Hey, I just wow. got this $99 Damn. eye tracker. <laughs> and I ended yeah. up, I went out the next day, I bought the $99 eye tracker and I had one in my lab at work. And uh-huh. I was like, I'm running eye tracking. I thought eye tracking cost $10,000. I have one for 99 bucks and it was open source <laughs> and I'm running eye tracking. And I was able to excel, continue to excel my career. I know I wouldn't have learned that anywhere else yeah. without applying that to school. So to me, it was continual learning. And then obviously I meet great people like you. <laughs> yeah. Cause we, we had to have been in class together. We graduated the same we year. Were. We were. Yeah. Exactly. I remember we shared some <laughs> research projects with each other. <laughs> That's amazing. And we, we did the same exact thing. We both heard about the Kent state program. We both wanted to get into it. Uh, I went to Syracuse while I was waiting, graduated from Syracuse, kept inquiring because I did I wasn't, I love Syracuse, but some of the courses that I wanted that drew me mm-hmm. to the program were not offered online. And and I love education. And so I don't, I don't care if I get a second master's degree. So, and I found out that the program was online and I left Kent State and I went right back to school 
and I, I went to Kent and, and I love, I, st- I love the program so much because I, I did what I talked about this before. I don't know if you ever heard me talk about this. I went through what I call the quintessential ethnographic study is what I like to call it because I went to Iowa state. I went to, I went to Drexel. Uh, I went to DePaul. I went to Bentley. Uh, <laughs> I just went to all these schools. And, and actually, I did it because I wanted to know, is this program for me? And I, I knew that I wanted to right. teach. And I wanted to Same see here. what the experience was like with these teachers. So I was trying to learn. That's That was the ethnographic study. I wanted to study the professors. And that's what I did. I studied the professors while I was at each one of these schools. And, and I, I, I learned things that I do in my professorship today. But yeah, I uh, went back. Hey, the program's online. Oh, here I come. And yep, we both graduated in 2015 from Kent State University. Yeah, that's my idea. And I didn't even think about that. I, that's, that's cool. Same thing. I was going to go into law. Uh, decide, I didn't want to defend guilty people because I was interested in corporate I, I law. I had a similar, similar <laughs> I had issue with the gray area. I am not defending some some uh, corporate crooks uh, just because it's my job. I, and, and I walked away from that. So, yeah, I didn't realize how, how parallel, how we were like walking in, in uh, lockstep there. That's, that's something. What is your biggest regret over the course of your career? That's a good one. I mean, there's obviously you probably heard some cop out answers like, I, I wish I would have gotten this earlier. Um, but I, I think the thing that comes to my mind is the fact that just enjoying the time more because I think that Interesting. being in the early dot com before the bubble crash. Uh-huh. I, I worked at an interactive firm. I built websites for tons of ad agencies. I just remember just cranking them out, just totally building them, going around <laughs> and thinking, oh, this is going to last forever. <laughs> and eventually <laughs> the, the bubble burst. And then I went, you mentioned clevelandhits.com. I, I went over to clevelandhits.com and I was like, this is great. And I was one of the world's first IJs called Internet Jocks. Oh, wow. Okay. And so when I was there, then the whole Napster thing hit and they went out of business because they had to pay the royalty fees. I forgot all about Napster. <laughs> and they went out. <laughs> it's so each time I was there, I was like, Oh, this is it. This is great. So because you're so involved in the work, you're not taking a minute to take a deep breath. And one of my other side hustles for 20 plus years is I've been a wedding DJ, which I haven't mentioned yet. But what I always tell my couples is I always tell them at the wedding reception, take a step out, go outside the wedding reception hall and look in through a window and watch everybody dancing because you never take a moment at your own wedding reception to reflect on it because you're uh-huh. so involved in it. Yeah. And every couple I talk to say, that's the best advice. We looked in, we saw uncle Phil dancing. He was going crazy. And <laughs> you know, I'm glad we took that moment. And that's what I always think about is just taking more time to enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is always a challenge. Absolutely. Love that. That's a different answer. Love that. Now we go into the, the wild card arena. And this is probably okay. where we end up getting into your book uh, as we head into that direction. You met, you already mentioned earlier something about your observations about the discipline today, but that's the question we're about to hit. What, what observations about the discipline today stand out to you? Again, I know you already said a few things, but focusing on this specifically now, what stands out? It's interesting. And it, it could be too simplistic. <laughs> so what I think about a lot is I think it was in Steve Krug's book. It was the, the rocket scientist one. Okay. Remember that one? Rocket science made, made easy. Rocket science made easy. Love that title. There was a line in there. <laughs> that I, I, for a while there, I memorized the page number <laughs> and I, I haven't had to in a while, but if I'm going to guess, I think it's like page 34. We'll see, you could check me on. I don't know what edition it's on now, but Steve says in there, he says, it doesn't matter who your participants are, but then in very small writing, like font size, like six, it says, 
But if you're working on a very specific application, yes, make sure to recruit people that are specific. (laughs) (laughs) What I always would think about is that it does matter the people you recruit for. And you said you touched on this earlier. We were talking about it. But I think the quality of your participants is going to yield the quality of your research and what you're building for your design. Mm -hmm. And I often think that there isn't as much time spent around who should be there. And then I found a lot in my career where not recruiting the right people or not planning that correctly yields information that is pretty much useless. (laughs) That why did I even do this? I just spent a whole day. And then what it does is those that are there either part of the session, if you are the designer that are doing all the tasks or if you're the researcher, depending on where your organization is, then you lose face with, or, or faith, I should say, maybe face, maybe both with your <laughs> stakeholders and they may not come back again. And because it was a dud in a way. So I think spending time properly on that, even though it may seem like it's a basic, I think a lot of times the things we do in user experience comes down to the basics because we're thinking too much about <laughs> the advanced stuff. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like that. The, one of the things that, that, uh, that we talked about earlier, we just throwing this in there. Uh, we talked about surveys. It, oh it, yeah. The, um, and from a, from a, just thinking about research in general and the issue of how, uh, qualifying people for, we talked about qualifying people for surveys. Uh, how a lot of people do surveys, whether it's a completely formal one or the informal ones like we see on LinkedIn all the time, those wonderfully structured surveys, <coughs> excuse me, on LinkedIn, where people are just asking for opinions. They're asking people mm-hmm. for these opinions. And it's gold. Yeah, to them, it's it's gold. Uh, but it's, it's you, you, you presented questions to people. And, and the reason I bring this up, if anybody wonders what I'm doing with this segue, is that we're talking about what what are you what, the observations of UX today people think that surveys UXers think that surveys are this can't miss methodology mm. when in fact surveys are so we talk about being a scientist survey science. survey science is so complex that you can get a degree just in writing surveys today 100% it's that complex and so when people Take this thing that you can get a degree in, and because it's available in SurveyMonkey for nothing or in Google Forms for nothing or in LinkedIn with no effort whatsoever, people, what I'm getting at is the oversimplification. You've said this word a few times already. The oversimplification of UX is rampant today. The oversimplification of education, the oversimplification of the methods and methodologies and the techniques. And, and and I'm just throwing this in here and, and want to get your take on this as well mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. the same topic. Uh, you ask 50 people a question, but you didn't vet them out. 50 people that you did not bother to screen or qualify. And then you give all 50 people the same exact weight to their responses. A lot of people don't even exactly. understand. That, matter of fact, a lot of people today who say they're doing research, all they know how to do is remote usability testing, and they say that they're UX researchers when one of my favorite books uh, that covers the universal method of design, they focus on research in that book, and there are 120 methods, methodologies, deliverables, and techniques. We maybe only use 15 to 17 regularly in in UX research, but if if you come to my house, say you're a handyman, and you come to my house with a gigantic toolbox and you open it up and you pull out a wrench come on now there's this is this is part of what we observed this is part of what we see and i this is where i think is a segue to your book to talk about your book for a moment because your book is about ux research you talk about making your customers dance that is what we are trying to do so in comparison to what you talk about in your book setting the stage for you Mm -hmm. what you talk about in your book and what we see from an observational standpoint of the observation about the discipline today, can you contrast and talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. Yeah. And I'm glad. I think it's funny you used the word stage. It's, we're talking about dancing. But <laughs> what's interesting, the book is called Make Your Customers Dance, the key to user experience is knowing your audience. And this was something that I wrote a couple of years ago where I realized that, and I mentioned this earlier, that the two things I've done for my entire life, I've, I've been a designer by day and then a DJ at night, but it always came down to understanding your audience because yep. you can, we've all gone to a wedding reception or a party where the dance floor is cleared and you go, how well are they doing? How, how well is that DJ doing? You know, not too well, but if it's packed, you, they're great. And that's the same thing that we want with our applications what we're building is we, we definitely are judging how many people are using it. That's definitely a metric. And then, then we're starting to figure out, okay, what's the quality of those that are using the application and can we upsell them and, you know, from business perspective. But I think the thing I always think about and what I talk about in the book is that depending on what you are building, whether that's an app, a system, a process, whatever you're doing, you are trying to get users on your dance floor into your app. You're trying to make them dance. And yeah. there's a lot of techniques that you can use to do that. Some of them, yeah, sure. I may survey the audience. I may, I may run a usability test out there, maybe an A-B test on my dance floor. <laughs> but the whole goal is to try to see how to continually keep them engaged because there's plenty of other things in the room to distract them. They mm -hmm. can go to the bar, they can go to the food table, they could leave. I talk about in the book where I was in one of those megaplex halls where they had four or five rooms. And I said, Hey, let's do a conga line. And everybody conga get out of my room to another room. <laughs> I had to go to the other room, go up to the DJ and say, can you tell everybody in wedding party to go back to my room? And I'm like, follow me. And I only got maybe like five people back. So think about on your website, if you, you have a link and you go, Oh, check it out on the website. Guess what? They're gone. Yep. If, if the content isn't on your website, you just sent them somewhere else, the chances of them coming back. So this all goes to keeping your content and, you know, thinking about what you have. So there's a lot of parallels between the two, mm -hmm. but it always yeah. goes down back to the audience. The fact that you are continually, all the apps you have, they don't, if you're on Spotify, they don't want you to go over to another app that's competing with that. They want you to stay there. There's yes. so many competitor apps and everyone's trying to create a new one and they're trying to figure out how to keep you or lure you over there. That's, that's the bottom line. There's all these yep. tactics that we can use. And just like you said, the smallest difference in that survey, the smallest difference in your copy, the sm all these small differences that you are continually designing or testing in user experience can make or break your application. And you talked about surveys. I did a huge presentation back on UXPA a while back on surveys. They're kind of a nerd thing for me. I'll, I'll take pictures of them. I, I have a whole folder full of UX examples whenever I see a good or a bad one. Uh -huh. And there are so many bad ones that are out there. We're asking yes. you for your personal information right up front. Yes. Hey, Darren, when were you born? Hey, Darren, what's your social security number? Uh, hey, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going any further past this. I'm done. But you, you, there's so many quick violations of surveys like that or, or information that I really don't know off the top of my head that I have to go look up somewhere. Well, they just left. They're never coming back. Right. But people think they will. Like, um... Describe, you're not coming back. Right, right. You just stirred up a memory for me. You are going to get a kick out of this. Talk about how we're parallel. You just stirred up a memory for me. Uh, I guess I buried it. I don't think about it very much. Guess what I used to be also? <laughs> a and DJ. I, I, a DJ. And, uh, I, and I never thought about it. I, I really put it out of my mind. I guess. And, and I see a lot of, as you mentioned in your book, a lot of UX parallels. And, and, and I'll just bring up one example. I was the, I was part of a DJ team. We had, we had, a, we had a group of people and we That's ran awesome. in sets of two. And I was with, I was with group a 
and then we had group B and then there was a group C where that person would work alone. So that way group B would take over and group A would take a break and sometime group group C and that was like one guy who would come in by himself when everybody needed a break or maybe everybody wanted to go and get on the floor or whatever it was that was happening. That, that I'm talking about some stuff that people don't even know about me. And, and so, because nobody ever heard me talk about this before. And so I made it a point to always study the crowd. I made it a point to understand the pulse of the room. I made, I knew what the, what the top music was of the day. I knew what, how to string music together to keep the energy of, of the event going and when to speed it up, when to slow it down, when to play that top notch hit for maybe exactly. the fourth or fifth time to know what the tolerance level, I, I made it a point to read but the part, the part that, that came back big time was that when Team B came up, there was a reason. I was with Group A, and we were we were behind the turntables 90 to 95% of the time. Group B barely saw any work, and Group C only got to work at the smallest of events where there was little to no risk. That was the way that we did things. But mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. Group B got on the got behind the turntables, it was blatantly obvious. And and the big difference between Group A and Group B, or Team A and Team B, was that Team A was very um, user centered. If I can use that terminology in retrospect, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. Group B was totally into self. That person they want to hear their own songs. They want to hear the songs that they like. And it didn't even matter to them that when they put their songs on and they would be there jamming, you could see it on their face and they were jamming and, and their eyes were closed to the point, I mean, doubly so, because they didn't even see that everybody left the floor and they would leave. They would go, they're going outside. They're going anywhere, anywhere but here with this guy who is like he is at home in his basement jamming to himself and, and just to see that that the metaphor uh see the UX related components in the, I, I have forgotten about this stuff. I made I, that mistake early on in my career so <laughs> I, I I remember that vividly cuz I started geez when I think when I was 13 I, I did this uh like eighth grade party down the street I brought all the songs I wanted to hear and <laughs> I remember this uh one of my classmates will say I'll go nameless walked up and said hey what is that right there I ejected the tape and he immediately put it in his mouth and just cracked the tape and handed it back to me. I'm like, I don't like them. And I was thinking, but I do. And I just <laughs> held this lifeless tape in my hands, cassette tape. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I guess I'll never play that one again. So it was, it is interesting how, like you said, if you get too self-involved, yes, definitely things can go. And I think there's a lot of applications that do that too. You think about it, they exactly. kind of in their own world. Exactly. And a lot of people, I was a DJ. People are user experience. That's what you are in title. But what are you in function? Because if you don't execute, mm-hmm. then you will, you will basically trigger what I'll coin the phrase, because I haven't heard anybody else say it, user alienation. And if you and if you trigger user alienation, then what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the and 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 an equation that, that I also hadn't heard anybody say before? I saw I think I saw somebody try to steal it from me, but UX plus CX equals BX. And and I I've heard I've seen people steal it. I've never seen anybody say it, but I have published it. I even saw somebody once I published it and I saw them present it the same exact way that I did. And they, they took my Venn diagram Yeah, they got it from me. I've seen stuff that I have said and done stolen and presented in boot camps. They didn't give me credit, but I've seen that before. I I had that happen too. The the first book I wrote was called don't fear the forward, the secret to successful websites. And Uh the secret was usability back then. Uh And this is going years back as that book then came out like, 2011 or something there was another group out of canada that set up a website called don't fear the website.com and they basically <sighs> took my entire book and just put it online and i was like mm, yeah it, it, you it, get, it, you're gonna have to take that down <laughs> and that's another that's another commentary on on that same question the, the today's observations in the discipline today plagiarism 
is accepted. I there, there, was, there was actually a person that I saw on LinkedIn one day, and he said, of course, identity secret, but some people will know who it is because they'll remember it. The person got on and he said, oh, I'm going to retire from being a UX influencer. And I'm going, what? And, and, and I, I knew the I knew who he was. I had had a, a private conversation with the person. What I didn't know was what this person was doing. He was engaging with people like me, taking the things that we say, going into other places where we were not, and sharing the same things that he heard us say, claiming them as his own, being lauded as being a quote-unquote influencer when nothing that he said was an original thought. And and I remember a story that someone else, I believe this person nameless, not, I could share the person that I just choose not to, who uh, shared a, published an article that was very, very insightful. The person did a fantastic job. Somebody took that person's blog post, posted it somewhere else as their own, and was getting credit for being a thought leader to the extent that the person ended up trying to remember how the story goes exactly. The person ended up telling somebody else about it or it was it was not shared in another instance because they 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 charged the author with plagiarism. The author was charged with plagiarism. That's how, the only that's other how. time I heard that was John Fogarty was sued by the record company because they said he sounded too much like CCR. And he's like, well, you know, I was the lead singer of that band. So that's, that's the only other, only other story I heard of that there. It, it's amazing. And there are even people in popular people today in UX are plagiarists. I won't say who they are. That's interesting. That's, that's it's first it, I heard of that. It happens so regularly. And, and uh, I had somebody, a very popular person one day told me that he likes my podcast. He'll probably hear this and he'll know who I'm talking about because he'll hear it. He said he liked my podcast and I already knew the battles that the person was engaged with and the people who were charging him with plagiarism. And when he said that he liked my podcast, I went, uh-oh. I know what that means. <laughs> things that, because I coined a lot of phrases and I talk about a lot of things and and they show up. I have seen things that I've done, especially the, awesome. the 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 uh, CX plus UX equals BX. The customer experience plus user experience equals brand experience. And and I did a, a Venn diagram. I have an article on my, my blog on my blog on Medium on uxuncensored.medium.com. Uh, There's a blog post uh, called The Experience Landscape. Somebody took the Venn diagram that I created, copied it, posted it with the equation, and they just changed one piece. I, I had a one of my other pieces of artwork. I took it. I took a royalty-free piece of clip art, modified it to make sure it matched my blog post. And I saw somebody else take the same exact clip art, do t take the words out and do the same. I'm going, come on, man. I paid for that. You didn't pay for that. <laughs> I paid for that royalty free clip art. At least give I credit. paid to use it. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, and these are just a few examples, but it is quite and rampant that's, today. That's fascinating. Um, it happens a lot. Uh, I have a lot of people that are actually angry with me in the UX world because of my stance, because I know why'd that person do that? That's a rip off of designing with the mind in mind. I won't say what it is, but that's really, I know that book. I was one of the, I was one of the, uh, one of the manuscript reviewers for designing with the mind in mind. So I know that book. Uh, Morgan Kaufman paid me to review that book. I like reviewing books. It's amazing. And, and then to see other books come out, the people who did that book, they studied psychology. They, care, they provide a lot of original thought. They give us things. We use that book to teach UX research at Kent State. It's one of the textbooks. It's a fantastic it's book. book. Some of the examples are old. I told them that when I reviewed the book. I wish you would update some of your graphic examples, but it still gets the point across. So I told them. They left it. Eh, you know, you got to do what you got to do but it still gets the job done. And then you see somebody else come out and do a book that's talking about UX psychology, but the, the author's not a psychologist. 
The author wasn't even a UX person. The author's a graphic designer. Is that the I play one on TV? <laughs> the equivalent thereof. And so people get angry with me. He said, no, it, it follows a process that UX celebritism is, is rampant today. It operates at epidemic levels. Another and, phrase. Yeah. And, and, it, and it, it creates problems because people, they've been in UX for a year and now they're posting videos to YouTube that, that are, they, they come across like a Hollywood production. They even show the person's feet as they're walking to the office that, that's a straight out of Hollywood type. I don't care about your feet. We're talking about UX. <laughs> it's just amazing. And then they say, I got a leadership job with no experience. Now you got a thousand people liking it because it microwaves. The, the microwave mindset mm-hmm. is a huge problem in UX today. There's no staying power. You, you cannot microwave your way up the UX ladder and bring value you can't, it, it, it's a, if you want to, if you want to stay, you got to be patient and you got to take your time, learn the discipline, do what me and Mark did, learn the discipline, take your lumps. They're going to be lumps in UX. Take your lumps, take it easy, continue to get up, dust yourself off and continue to go forward. And, and we're still in a, a very young discipline. And so it's critical that, that I totally process. agree, Darren. Yeah, due process we followed. It'll stick to your ribs. You'll have longevity, and we'll have a good discipline for years to come. I'm fighting for other people. I'll be retired. I'm fighting for these people who are coming behind me to mm-hmm. have something good to to stick with. But that that's me being on my soapbox again. We're gonna we're running out of time, so we're gonna close out with the standard closing question. What advice do you have, Mark? for up and comers in the discipline today. All those things we just said, it's a perfect Pretty much. segue. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, I think the first one is have a growth mindset. Yep. Continually learn. I think the second thing is, and after doing the UX pathways podcast, uh-huh. uh, season one, been starting to work on season two, I started trying to summarize kind of the commonality between all the guests. And I think the one thing that I find a commonality is that you constantly need to get your thoughts down, whether that if you're journaling or if you, you come up with an idea and that just builds into your practice because while you're working, you're going to have an idea, jot it down and continue what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Don't try to get sidetracked. And I think a lot in today's world is constantly being pulled in a lot of directions, but be very systematic with the way you are project managing yourself. And then I really think the the last thing is passion. I think if you're in this field, you're in this field, as you said earlier, that you are acting as a advocate, you are trying to set an example and show some kind of intrinsic value of what you're doing. And people are gonna know if you're passionate about what you're doing. They can sense it in what you're saying and how you're doing it and that's infectious. So if you are deciding to go into this, make sure you check that passion level at the door. And maybe there's a very specific niche you're looking for. Maybe that may take you some time, but make sure that is present and you'll continue. Like you said, you'll love what you do. You're constantly every, all the other things will fall into place. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Fantastic. Love that. Okay. That is going to wrap up this time. Another, another very thorough and energetic conversation that I know people are going to love. Thank you, Mark, for taking the time to join me on today. I know I'm taking time away. Always from a blast. You Thank you, Darren. <laughs> and uh, we got to do this again. I, I got to have a lot of repeat episodes with, with same, folks. Same over here. here. We'll, we'll make it more cyclical. <laughs> but we're going to get ready to sign off here, but I'm going to do something I should be doing more uh, uh, on my shows. Uh, tell people where they can find you. Let them know about your book books again, but tell people where they can find you and engage with you out in yeah, the, thank you. the ecosphere here. Yeah. I mean, you can definitely do the Amazon. Just look up 
Mark Majors. You can go there. I also have a website, just marcm.com, and then everything should be there. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Fantastic. So uh, thank you for that. And that'll make it easy for people to find you. I got to start. I'm actually about to, on the World O UX website, I'm actually going to start having a page that shows all of my interviewees. And then I'm going to put all the links down there so people can not only see or hear your show easily, but they'll be able to tap into whatever whatever uh, your website or your podcast or anything. We're going to make all that stuff available so I can provide a service to the people that come on the show. I'm trying to use my venue to help people's voice get out there. There's a lot of people. I keep saying this. I'm saying it every time I do this kind of episode now. There's a lot of people out there with a lot to say, but I want to bring you people that not only have a lot to say, but things that you need to hear and things that will vault you forward in the discipline. We wish all the best for you out there. We want you to to do your absolute best. So we want to bring you quality so you can achieve exactly that. So thank you again, Mark, for being with us today. Thank all of you out there who took the time out of your schedule to listen. But it is now time to sign off. So this is the host, Darren Hood of The World of UX. Until next time. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.